This is a production of Cornell University. Uh, thanks everyone for, for tuning in to episode three, of the Cornell Turf Show. We're in season four of this thing. Uh, thanks to the live audience. I know it's, it's getting a little warmer up here, kind of in central New York, people probably out and about today. But uh, as Frank, I, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about today. We might see a little bit of a pause here in the growing season coming up. Uh, so as always, you know, tune in on, on Thursdays and Fridays if, if you can't get out and, and do some work. Uh, Frank, yeah, I've got a I've got a rant uh, prep for today. We're going to talk about some bunkers here and and my uh, grievances with bunkers. But as always, I'll turn it over to you and uh, and have you kick us off with some some thoughts on how the growing season's progressing in in the next couple uh, days or so. What a life this guy's got, right? I think that's Tory. I think it's either Tory Pines or somewhere in L.A. Uh, what a lovely picture. Uh, lives of dogs, right? We started out with this so long ago, Carl. And we're and we're still doing it. The the cute pictures of dogs, right? You just you, you just can't beat them. But I thought this was really an even better one. I I I think this was from someplace in England. Uh, I don't. I sort of just misplaced the tweet and couldn't see it. But you know, this is always you know this used to be a pretty standard practice on golf courses around the world. That this this particular problem, when you look in the history books, Carl of St Andrews and the way they manage the links courses. You know, they didn't have synthetic fertilizers in the late 1700s, early 1800s. They were slinging animal manure. Animal manure is pretty much all they had. And as you built those sands up with organic matter, worms were literally threatening the game. Uh, there were so many until the ammoniacal uh, nitrogens came on, uh, sulfates came on uh, and began to be applied uh, to irritate and kill these things. And then... We embarked upon a heavy metal, uh, you know, application regime, which lasted the better part of a hundred years, because uh, you know you put them on once, they work a really long time. So we're continuing, as everyone knows, you know, this problem is not going away. It's sort of, I wouldn't say hiding in the weeds. I think for some people, it's an absolutely major problem that has caused a lot of adaptations. I think, Carl, later in the season, we're going to probably get Kyle or Paige. Uh, or Ben, who, who had some very interesting findings, just talk about worms, because, you know, it's one of those things that you don't pay attention to. And we don't have, you know, saponin based products to provide some at least uh, alleviation of the issue. Uh, this isn't going to get any better. Uh, just one more note, uh, a, a little announcement. Um, we next Thursday, I will not be on the show. Uh, we will let you know what uh, what the adaptations will be moving forward uh, for this because I'm doing a walk and talk uh, at Jan and Das's Golf Club in New Hartford, New York, uh, as part of the GCSA's NY's Walk and Talk series. We're going to be talking covers. Carl, they took down a lot of trees, yeah. and of course, we always have a, a little BMP conversation, and it will be the first day for I believe a Texan on his way north. Okay. Uh, to be the golf course superintendent, uh, and it will be his first day of work. And Chris will uh, come back uh, for that walk and talk as well. So it should be a very delightful place. Now, Carl, before I pass it over to you, Jan Das is a pretty cool place, right? Is that Donald Ross? Uh, it's similar, Walter Travis. Walter uh, but Travis. it has got some spectacular topography. And you mentioned tree removal. You can actually see that topography now. The clubhouse looks looks over all of it. It's yeah. it's pretty stunning as a as a visual. And all as, right, but here we go. Here we go. I'm ready. I started. I thought I. You know, this is every golfer's worst nightmare. In fact, they were talking at it 
talking about it quite a bit on the telecasts, uh, the PGA telecast this weekend, where, you know, it hit, it, it would hit and roll out, right? It wasn't always a fried lie, but, but it costs a lot to do this, Carl. Yeah, and, and that's what, what sort of turned me on to this is last week I saw this tweet from the USGA. You know, they made a, a video really kind of detailing why sometimes we see inconsistency in, in bunkers, right? Sometimes it'll plug in there, right? It hits and stays in the, in the Friday glide. Oh, that's, that's really tough as a golfer. Sometimes it hits and rolls out. Sometimes there's no real impact. It's firm enough. It kind of rolls around. Uh, and they had a really nice video sort of detailing all the variables that go into how that sand plays. And how even just at one golf course, if they're doing all the same things to every bunker, you're going to get variability. Uh, so they mentioned stuff like irrigation uh, heads, how they're situated around a green. If there's some overspray into certain bunkers based on how those heads are oriented, those bunkers are going to play you know, firmer. They're going to have higher moisture content. And if you're getting no, no, none of that overlap, irrigations could be softer. They made a really nice nod to the direction those bunkers are facing. So if they're in the south, southeast direction, they're getting hammered by the sun. They're going to dry out faster. Even if you're trying to water them and firm them up, those are going to play softer and they're going to play softer as the day progresses versus the bunkers that are in the north, northwest direction, right? They're not getting as much sun. They're, they're drying out slower. They're playing firmer. And I think this is really interesting to understand because a lot of times when golfers complain about bunkers, it's something like, and you'll hear PGA Tour pros talk about it. Oh, this, this bunker had no sand. That bunker had a lot of sand. And sometimes they're not saying what they mean. And, and we know this dealing with maybe some athletic field from uh, soccer coaches or something, Frank, where really what they mean is this bunker played firmer or this bunker played softer. And they don't like that. They like consistency. And, and what I would say is, you know, first of all, bunkers, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be there in the first place. So there probably should be some variability in there. The second thing I'd say is the best way to identify bunker players is to give them variability and to test them hey, you have to figure out how this ball is coming out. We do that with rough, right? Rough never has the same lie when you miss a green. That's is what I mean. Gonna, yeah. Is it going to spin? Is it going to fly on you, right? You have to read the lie. And I would say the same thing for bunkers. So this is not a bad thing that there's that there's variability in bunkers. Uh, but but when we look at the cost to maintain bunkers, Frank, this is where it starts to get pretty crazy. This is some, some initial data from USGA Deacon Tool where they collected uh, data from the golf courses that were using it and calculated, you know, hey, between the labor, between the between the materials, between the equipment costs, what does it cost per acre to maintain the various playing surfaces on a golf course? Obviously, the greens are number one there, right? They're, they're receiving the most inten intense maintenance. This, this graphic has it about $70,000 per acre. That probably varies wildly. But the interesting thing about this table is you look at the bunker number, $40,000 per acre to maintain bunkers, right? That's, you know, 60 to 70% of what it costs to maintain a putting surface. That is an enormous amount of money. And when you look at some other research the USGA has done where they've asked golfers about their playing preferences uh, on certain uh, playing surfaces, they classified bunkers as a, what they call a dissatisfier. So that's a surface that is prone to creating a negative impact when it's not managed appropriately, but it doesn't provide that extra value the better you maintain it. You could have a perfectly maintained bunker and you, and you have to spend so much more to achieve that versus maybe some minimum standard that the golfer likes. And a great way to, to sort of uh, explain this is a bunker, you know, uh, you go into a bad bunker. I've got a picture of a bunker that's waterlogged here. The golfer obviously uh, does not like that, right? And that creates a negative image in their head that they hold for the entire round. But if you spend a whole lot of money and maintain that bunker the best it could possibly be, 
golfer's not coming out of that bunker, Frank, and saying, man, that was the best bunker I have ever exactly played right. out of in my life. It's that right. was so, oh, man, they don't, they don't ever come away from a golf course singing praises of bunkers, right? So maybe there's this minimum acceptable level. We don't know what that is, but that will maximize your inputs uh, and how you have to maintain these areas and not, not go that extra level. Uh, but where I'm, where I'm really going to place some blame here, Frank, is, is architects that use bunkers as a crutch. And I'm not going to single any, any specific ones out. I've got an image here of, of a golf hole that literally has maybe 40 to 50 bunkers on just one hole. And architects love the visual aspect of bunkers. There's these flyover bunkers. Donald Ross famously put what he called a top bunker in front of the women's tees when he used to design courses to penalize bad shots, right? And that's just a waste of, of time to, to maintain that bunker. How much value does that give you? What I'd say is there's a, there's, a, there's a less expensive way to maintain features similar to bunkers, and that's these ground features I've got on the screen. Linden Golf Course is a cool little community golf course, short course up in Syracuse. Uh, the initial course had a lot of these sort of Walter Travis bunkers. We're talking about Yanandasa, similar, same architect here. Very cool features, right? And they can provide the similar sort of playing uh, strategy and, and aesthetics as a bunker, and they're less, less, less uh, cost intensive. Right. And, and there's another photo here, Guy Cipriano taking a, a picture. There's a couple of these mounds. Right. And it's interesting. The ball is rolling. Are you going to get the good bounce or the bad bounce? Uh, and it's so much uh, less to, to maintain these areas. It's not nothing. Right. It's there's still some maintenance going on here. But I would just say I would challenge architects to really think about every bunker you put on a golf course. Think about that forty thousand dollars per acre number. And is it worth is it worth me putting this bunker here? Right. Augusta National has, I think, I think it's around 40 bunkers. There's, there's around two per hole, I think, at Augusta National. That's not many. Right. And there's there's courses with over 100. Right. So obviously, good golf can be played with with few bunkers per hole. And I would challenge some architects to, to maybe be a little bit more uh, thoughtful about how they're, they're laying those out. Okay, we'll, we'll get to the shade you just threw on architects in a minute, Carl. But um I think the dissatisfier thing is is really the driver here, right? It's it's really the driver because you can't win, right? There's no winning. There's only there's only fin there's only finishing. Yes. You, you have to produce them, and from there you're right. You're exactly right. No one ever comes off the golf course and say, "Oh, that was a, those are beautiful bunkers." You don't hear it very often. Unless they spend a lot of time in them and they're really good golfers, which uh, one happens more than you know than the other. So I think that dissatisfier point is really good for the mindset uh, you should have when you're discussing them, right? And you know we've talked about where to put them based on the the Deacon data, the GPS data that we are looking at, right? That's a that's a growing use of of that particular data. Now, the other thing that's fascinating about this uh, rant for me is you and I are always barking about fairways, reduce fairways, reduce maintenance on fairways, fairways, fairways. And now I'm looking at this and saying, well, you know, <laughs> compared to bunkers, I think we what we ought to do is figure out what this crutch is about. Because if you're telling me that these, what we've always said about these large amount of land that we're managing, and we talk about it from an environmental impact perspective, right? Not necessarily from a maintenance perspective, it does add maintenance because you got to spray and, and do all the other things when you're treating for pests. But that's a pretty profound statement that, you know, I, you know, I'd like to look pound for pound. You know, when I look at this picture on the left here with, with these, you know, snaked 
waste bunkers that travel the length of the fairway that, you know, somebody I know well does really good. And they say, well, you don't have to rake them every day. And then you get them and you got to rake them every day because the people are out there using them and they don't think, they think about it just like it's a greenside bunker and, and not a waste bunker. So um, talk a little bit about the crutch because Tom Doak said to me once, Frank, if we didn't have bunkers, people wouldn't be able to tell it was a golf course from the road. That's what he said to me in a time he visited here once. So talk yeah. a little bit about what you think they're using it for as a crutch. Is it a penalization that you think is easy to do and doesn't really could be achieved other ways? I, I think the first first and foremost is, is I think that penalization aspect, right? Hey, if you're if you're taking on this this left pin and and I want to penalize you for taking on that risk. Hey, here's a bunker and we're going to put it really deep set and make it hard to get out of. Um, so, so it definitely starts with penalizing sort of, sort of bad shots, but there's also an aspect of depth perception. Mm -hmm. And I've heard Gil talk a lot about this and, and how deep a bunker is and how it's set in next to a green or near a fairway. It distorts how you view the hole. Alistair McKenzie was famous for, uh, he started in, in military warfare and, and yeah. how to build trenches that the enemy couldn't see. And his course is famously, you'd look back from green to T and you couldn't see the, the bunkers, but they would affect you visually. So there, there is certainly an aspect of that, that color definition, how you build into a hillside or into a fairway mm -hmm. and how the golfer sees that hole. Mm -hmm. um, but I would also say that you can achieve those same things with these, these turf features. And if you use different varieties, maybe different turf grass varieties, you plant some fescues on there that have a different color, mm -hmm. uh, you can build them up and make them, mm -hmm. them uh, visual from the tee. You can achieve those same sort of things. Yeah. And you can still get a penal nature. Um, yeah, and you can still drive over most of these things with a, with a mower. Some of the ones, uh, little ones on the right might be a little tricky, but th those you could also do eyebrows, right? Uh, Josh Fontaine's got them at Saratoga Golf. Mm -hmm. A lot of places have these drops, uh, right, where they, they get a little hairy on the top. Um, and those are really penal. You'd rather be in a shitty bunker, excuse me. <laughs> You'd rather be in a bad bunker than in, in, in that snotty stuff. Right, so... I love this, we, we, I, but let's keep moving because we could spend the whole time yakking about this. And let's talk about getting going for the season. Here's a really nice, uh, another depiction. I, I think this is a golf course uh, somewhere in Europe, uh, on, maybe in the British Isles, where you can see they've got a, tom a compost applicator here uh, that they're putting on their fairways. And this was about a week apart or two weeks apart when they took these pictures. Uh, very similar, you can see by the sea. Um, and, and the dramatic nature that warming that system up with the, just anything dark, right? Colors, uh, covers, we'll talk about that next week. Pigments can be a big part of this. So let's talk about what's going on during the growing season. We'll do a little walk through the weather. Soils are hovering in the upper 30s to 40s region-wide. If you recall last week, they were creeping into the 50s. So we've really hit this pause button um, it may be coming to a close soon, but not uh, necessarily in the next week. Um, we were about two to four degrees above normal. If you looked above New York City and a little bit cooler to the south, uh, cooler and closer to normal to the south. But as we look forward, uh, normal temps are expected, right? And this is that perception thing. Normals are in the 30 to 40s for the next uh, week um, for this time of year normally. 
I mean, you might creep into the 50s and 60s for a day or two. Certainly downstate you will. But you look, you know, you can see we're not going to accumulate more than 10 to 15 growing degree days, you know, north of uh, north of New York City and just south of New York City, maybe about 20 growing degree days for the whole week. So not a big uh, not a big progression necessarily from a temperature perspective. Let's look at the all important moisture perspective. Right. And, and that's last week. It was slightly wet to the west of the region, but just slightly uh, a little bit above normal when you look at, you know, uh, precipitation minus uh, evapotranspiration, which, you know, you're not getting a lot of water loss. It gets wet. It stays wet typically this time of year. And then it was getting drier to the east uh, and south. And we talked a little bit about this dry area in central Jersey that's getting a little bit of a relief uh, just today. Um, it's very interesting looking back at last month's precip, like if you look at, you know, about a 30 day period of rainfall, there's this swath of wet uh, pre precip, uh, almost 200% of normal in some places, uh, that if you drew a line across the the Northeast region from Buffalo to Boston, right in about a two, 300 mile range, it's, it's pretty moist, uh, dry to the South and dry to the North uh, of this line. So just in the last month, you're starting to see uh, the moisture situation uh, begin to shape up on our native soils. Now it looks like uh, moving forward, we're going to get a couple of fronts moving through. So I'd expect some more rainfall this uh, coming week for the region wide. That appears to be showers coming in at different times, uh, depending on where you are in the region, but everybody's going to get a little bit. I think Art even said maybe up, uh, up, to, up to an inch. So it's going to be a, a good slug of rain uh, and, a, and not all the places needed as that previous uh, image indicated. So now we're going to get to the heat part of this and, and the crux of the conversation today that I think is good because this has been coming up now. This seed head suppression topic has been coming up pretty regularly, Carl, since we started so early in February, right? So, so you know, I, as you can see on our, on our website, we have both Embark, for those of you who still use mefluidide, and proxy degree day models based on some research that uh, we conducted in our program back about many years ago, 2005, 2006, when Proxy came to the market and was really going to revolutionize things. We did it at Skinny Atlas Country Club and we did it at Oak Hill. And we developed these models over a couple of years that said, here are the ideal conditions. So those uh, mathematical models based on January 1st growing degree days, right? We accumulated for the whole year in our model. You can see we are passing prime throughout the Metro New York area. And as you move up, we're still not in the, uh, we're still a little early as you move North. Uh, you know, the Connecticut coast, Southeastern New England, coastal New England is currently in an ideal pattern. Uh, for seed head suppression. And so it's a good time, Carl, to talk about the degree day model stuff, right? So the GDD tracker, which starts accumulating February 15th and missed the warmest January we've had, is indicating you've got some time uh, in some of these areas before it's too late. In fact, it's saying that the ideal range is right where the Cornell, the New York model says we're past. And this is an indication of the how you use these growing degree days to design your approach, right? You know, you have to decide which model you're going to use. Have you tried these? What works for you? Because I've also heard people say, yeah, I hit it on the 8th and 12th green, but man, I missed it on the 15th and 16th. You get microenvironments. You got different populations of POA. These models for this stuff is only going to be so good. So that's what really 
made the fall application stuff that we'll talk about in a minute really important because you could do it consistently. But I thought I would revisit, why are we doing this? What is this about? What happens to the plants when you restrict reproductive growth and you allow it to continue some form of vegetative growth? How does it affect annual bluegrass performance? And I've talked about this before. Actually, I dug some of these slides out of the turf show I think we did a few years ago. This is Rich Cooper's work from the 80s. Look who's the last author on this, Tony Kosky. This is back when Kosky was a technician and Cooper were technicians at Ohio in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s, when Embark came to the market. And one of the things that they found out at the gate was that when you suppressed seed heads, you had uh, more structural carbohydrates, stored energy, reserves, in the roots, this indicated that the plant had reserve energy, that it somehow conserved energy from uh, you know, flower production, seed head production, and moved it into stored energy into the root system uh, using embark. So this was pretty revolutionary. It also had a significant effect on root elongation, right? Looking at it over a number of months, the high embark rates that were suppressing seed heads we're also leading to significantly more rooting. It's like, this is win-win, right? This is where the whole idea, not just of doing it for performance, but for doing it for uh, plant health was really important. So the, there you go. This is also a very interesting point that they made at the very bottom. It actually mentions the rebound effect. This is something we all still have to consider. And this is really the basis of Bill Kreiser's work years ago when he began to start looking at how Primo degraded in the plant. And if you didn't apply the Primo at the right time, you got this surge in growth. Well, this was observed even back then. You look at the root, you know, substantial decrease in leaf stem and root tissue following growth inhibition. The carbohydrate levels went down in the tissue when the growth surge occurred. So this is the sort of talk about, is this really helping the plants? So. Let's go back to how we do it. And then we'll get back to whether it's really helping the plants. And this is Sean Askew's work from 2015, where he's looking at trying to time it in the spring only, uh, applying it in what he's calling winter with a snow mold application, and then a follow-up spring application, right? And what you see both with Proxy and Primo is that if you apply a winter application, of proxy, for example, you're even with, you know, with a single spring application, you, you, you know, you're still getting exceptionally good uh, seed head suppression out of the gate. So I don't know about the timing of the spring, but you're locking in a lot of improvements. If you look at the difference from spring only, which is 25% and winter and spring, that's uh, 82%, you see a 60%, just get that application down in the fall and you don't have to worry as much, in my opinion, about time in the spring thing. The other thing is that was Sean's work in 15. Zach Riker led a collection of regional scientists a number of years ago, published his paper in 2019 about looking at this across these regions. And they had a Connecticut region in there that's saying the fall application date is best November 9th. The initial spring application date this year, if you're starting on January 1st, looked like about 
Uh, base 32 looked like about 350. If you're using growing degree days on a first or 15 start. So here's that thing, Carl, where it depends on where you start and what it means, you know, with how you're going to look at these models. And they did it across these regions. The thing that's interesting is, right, they've interest, introduced proxy and, of course, primo now. Okay. So what does this, let's say, okay, we've been doing it. It makes sense. It looks like we've dialed in how to do it. A very small piece of work was conducted by John Inguijado. Look at the dates on this call, 2005, 2006. I remember Bruce Clark, when he used to come on our conference call on Thursday mornings, actually would talk to us about this. They had identified this uh, early on that potentially was involved. So this is a study where they looked at the effect of seed head suppression using Embark, Proxy, and Primo applied alone and together. The Primo wasn't applied alone. The, um, the uh, Primo was only applied with the things, with the two seed head suppressors, right? Because Primo doesn't suppress seed heads. Interestingly, when they used Embark alone, they got an increase in anthracnose between 14 and 30%. They put Primo in there, it decreased anthracnose between five and 11%. Proxy alone, and proxy looks like the key here. Proxy alone decreased anthracnose 13 to 35% compared to not using seed head suppression. Proxy and Primo, pretty much the same. So Primo seems to safen some of the Embark stuff. It seems to safen, it doesn't have that same impact on proxy. But definitely proxy is an advantage. If you're struggling with anthracnose, these uh, tools would be then important uh, things. Interesting little uh, contrast there uh, with the, um, you know, with the, uh, uh, the Embark that has the health benefits that Cooper showed, but not those benefits manifested. So listen, Carl, I'm going to wrap up here, but I wanted to, I thought we'd uh, chat a little bit about putting quality. Right, mm -hmm. we see seed heads on putting greens. We've talked about how these poannual greens out west get a bad rap, mm -hmm. but it also changed the whole location on these greens too, and it's an indication of the traffic. We've talked about how crappy golfers are, even good golfers are from ten feet. Here's some Bro Mark Brody data that a, a PGA Tour pro makes a ten footer only four out of ten times. And then remember, you you shared this. Lou Stagner's had this. We get worse over the course of the day. They miss a, a ten footer, an eight footer, even more uh, as as the day goes on. The the GS three, which we're going to get Elliot on this thing, or we're going to get Zach, or we're going to get one of those USGA guys on or on here to talk about this. But this is one of those things, Carl, that seed heads also have this effect potentially on putting quality. Now you've looked at spike damage how would you rate seed head damage i'll stop sharing how would you rate seed head damage uh or seed head you know presence with yeah. spiking on a green yeah so so we've used the bobble test when we do our traffic studies uh we use what's called the bobble test which is uh, in a way subjective basically you roll a ball and you count uh, how many times it chatters which is it doesn't leave the ground but it sort of bobbles as it's moving up and down vertically how many times it snakes, which is sort of this left to right horizontal movement. And then a bobble is, is when it comes off the ground, like it hits something, pops up, and that's a really right. easy thing. So we, we've rated traffic through, through that bobble test. And you consider all those things, and it, it goes from one to nine. 
Uh, and so we, when we see a lot of spikes, especially spike shoes that have an external spike on them, we've tested metal shoes, you'll get some, some bobbles where it hits a spike mark and the spike mark is so physically present that it, it chops the ball up and the ball hops up in the air and it does something. Um, when we've tested these spikeless designs, generally what we've seen is that we don't get so much of that, that leaving the ground, but we get what we call chatter. So bop, 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 it's kind of, it's, it's oscillating as it's moving across the ground. It's not really snaking. So we really see those, when, when you get spike marks from external spikes, you see snaking, you see bobbles. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Spikeless design is more of this chatter. And, and sometimes those things don't really separate themselves out when you're using this bobble scale. And we've talked with the guys at FootJoy now about, hey, maybe we should differentiate between that chattering where the ball's not really leaving its line versus a snake where it, it sort of veers off and, and really affects the, the line of the putt. So when I think to seed heads, and, and most of the time what we're seeing with seed heads is that chattering. It's, it's probably a lot like a lot of the spikeless shoes we would test, where it's, it's, it's noticeable for a golfer, right? The golfer's seeing that golf ball oscillate up and down, but is it really changing the line of the putt? And that's what I think we're, we're more interested in when you see a real big deviation in how the ball, it, deflection, right? We call it deflection too. That's really influential on how that putt should have gone and maybe how it got knocked off course. Sean Askey's work at Virginia Tech has looked at this with, with uh, little spots of POA, little dollops of POA That's in right. a newer bent grass green and how that deflection, something like eight millimeters, yeah. uh, can affect how you, you make a miss or putt. Yeah. So, you know, when I'm thinking about seed head suppression, it's probably more of that chatter domination that, that you would see from a golfer perspective which if I'm really grasping at straws here, I'm thinking that's probably not going to affect the outcome of a putt, right? That's what we care about from 10 feet. A PGA tour makes it 40% of the time. Eh, is it 38 with, with the seed heads? Maybe, I don't know, but probably not as much as. But in super slow-mo, Carl, in yeah. super slow-mo, it looks really bad. It but your point bad. is, your point is well taken. Is it coming offline? And Sean Askew's work where they use that strike plate yeah. Right. That's how they were determining. But that is a relatively uniform surface as a bent grass with a dollop of POA in it. When you look at the picture I showed earlier, you got a uniform stand of POA. You got seed heads everywhere. You got, you know, tight POA everywhere. It would be, you'd think, more of a of a chatter. We're at 1030. We're over time. Do we have a question we want to take or what? Yeah, so so Ben Palmer has a good question about those grass feature mounds we were talking about, and mm -hmm. and I mentioned briefly in there, you know, hey, these are lower maintenance than bunkers, but they're probably not no maintenance, right? No, they're not. So no he's asking, hey, you know, do those dry out more, right? They're elevated. They're probably not holding water as much. Do you have to hand water, growth regulator, wetting agents? We've talked about this with with our guy Josh managing those out at Saratoga Golf and Polo. Do you want to comment? A, a, a bit I told on him that? to burn them. I told him to burn them. I think that be, I don't know if you can get away with it, but that would be the option just to get some of that organic material out of there, um, I or 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 strip it off. And those things are best when literally they're growing on subsoil. Many years ago, Jim Skorolski uh, coined a term I liked. He calls it he called it contra agronomic principles, right? Instead of promoting uh, fertile fertile soils and soil health, get rid of that stuff. Use it somewhere else. And use these areas to restore really bad soils because 
That's what grasses and these meadow systems are, are good at. And I think they do dry out, Ben. I think they can be more maintenance. And I think that we have to be careful, right? I mean, we've already seen this happen in, in native areas on golf courses where that, that level of herbicide use, uh, a, a company that will go nameless sends out a regular email with talks about the five or six different chemicals you got to use on these native areas. So you are correct. I, uh, I don't want, I think Carl's right. We don't want to suggest no maintenance. I think our vision, Carl, it's run the mower over it or the vent track over it, yeah. not turn it into this, you know, multiple chemical application. Uni uniform festival that's thinned out nicely, right? There's, there's gotta be some variability. Let's take the variability. We're okay with that. Let's okay. provide some All right, let's get out of here. We're late. Yeah, well, a well, little bit over time, but nonetheless, still was, was a fast 30 minutes, Frank. Thanks for joining me. Uh, tomorrow, we'll be on with Kale Bigelow from Purdue. We're going to talk about some early season fertilizer growth rate stuff. Uh, so tune in for that in our Lawn and Landscape uh, episode. But until then, thank you all for joining live, and, and uh, we'll see you tomorrow. This has been a production of Cornell University on the web at cornell.edu.